sure it's Vineyard Northwest uh, Cincinnati, all right? All right, a couple of quick jokes here. This first one is uh, a real happening. Okay, this is a real story. Uh, pizza shop. Guy uh, gets a phone call from, from a customer, and he says, well, my pizza was delivered on time, but all it is is crust. There's no sauce. There's no cheese. There's no meat. There's nothing else on it except crust. And the guy running the pizza, pizza store said, well, I'm, I'm really sorry, sir. I have no idea how that could have happened. And then there's a pause, and the guy on the other line, end of the line says, uh, never mind, I opened the box upside down. Okay, come on, that's funnier than you the, than that. All right, um, so these two guys sitting in a bar all day long, and on the TV comes up a show about deep water, uh, deep sea diving, and one of the guys gets his equipment on, he goes and sits on the edge of the boat and then drops over in backwards. And the one guy says, I've never been able to figure out why do they do that? Why do they drop into the water back, sit there, and then drop in backwards like that? The other guy thinks for a minute, and he says, I think I've got it. If they fell forwards, they'd still be in the boat. Okay. See, yeah. See, if they, if they fall forward, they'd still be in the boat because these, yeah, all right. Okay, never mind. I'm going to work harder on my jokes. Well, uh, we've been talking about intimacy with God and uh, the, the importance of intimacy with God. And this was all stirred. So we have Mark Marks here. And re- really, as you look around, you see anointing on people and you see people pray and you see God work. And, and you know that you, you as a believer have the same authority. You have the same relationship with God. You have access to the same power. Yet one person prays and sees something happen. Another one uh, sometimes does, sometimes doesn't. And, and what's up with that? You know, as I've been thinking about it, I think that one of the keys that puts together all of the pieces, all the parts we've been learning about, our, our new identity in Christ that we are new, that we are righteous, that uh, we have a position of authority, spiritual authority, we have that, that there is real power in our lives, that we are sons and daughters of the living God. The thing that brings those things together and actually kind of activates them in our lives is intimacy with God. It, It is having an intimate relationship with God because if we're not focused on intimacy with God and having a growing intimacy with God, then we slip into transactional type thinking where we think, if I do this for God, then he'll do this for me. And, and that even becomes part of our ministry thinking. We think, well, if, if I had uh, prayed more or if I had read the Bible more, then when I prayed for that person, uh, they would have been healed. Or if I had just believed more, and, and there's some truth to that, but belief comes out of intimacy. You see, it's intimacy with God that, that causes all the different parts and aspects of his work in our lives to gel together and to enable us then to flow with what he's doing and, and to flow with his life. So I want to talk about that uh, further with you today. And uh, the whole idea of intimacy, you know, what is it? Uh, you know, what does intimacy mean? And if I was going to define intimacy for us, I would say that intimacy is in a relationship 
crossing over barriers, crossing over lines that are not either not easy to cross over or everybody doesn't get to cross over, okay? Uh, for instance, husband and wife. There's a physical relationship they have where they've crossed over a line that other people don't get to cross over. And, and, and you don't get to cross over until you're actually husband and wife. That's intimacy. And in intimacy, in, um, in knowing another person, it is crossing over into a realm where I understand their heart. I don't just see what they do, but I begin to understand why they do it. I begin to understand what motivates that person, what moves their heart, what touches their heart. And so intimacy uh, in, in the human realm really is an illustration of, of our real need for intimacy with God. And uh, it, it is so important in all of our lives because we're born into a fallen world. And so we're all born with this uh, kind of fallen heart uh, question that says, am I really okay? I- am I really acceptable? If other people really knew who I was, if other people knew what I thought, if other people knew what I struggle with, would they still love me? And most, most people at some point in their lives anyway struggle with thoughts like this. But when we actually enter into a relationship of intimacy with other human beings, where they do see the things I'm struggling with, they do see uh, the motives in my life, they do begin to see deeper into my heart than uh, just the average person would see. When, when that happens, and we're loved anyway, then it gives us a sense of reassurance and stability in life. And it gives us a confidence about life that, that we're not going to have any other way. And that's ultimately uh, the, the way we want to relate to God and what we want to experience with God is not just a head knowledge that, yeah, God loves me in spite of everything, but entering into an intimate connection with him where I understand his heart towards me. And, and then I begin to see what it really means when I say he loves me unconditionally. And so uh, this whole idea of intimacy... Um, is, is reflected in human relationships. One of, the, um, one of the things I will do when I talk to someone that tells me they have a, a grandparent that just passed away, I will almost always very quickly in the conversation ask them how close they were to their grandparent. And um, legitimate answers, you know, might be um, my grandparent lived in California. I grew up right here in Ohio, so I only saw them once a year, so I wasn't really that close. That's, I, you know, I hear that. Uh, I hear sometimes, my parents didn't have me till later in life, so my grandparents were pretty old. They couldn't really do a whole lot with us, and so I didn't get to know them that well. Loved them, but didn't, didn't know them that well. Now, other times, I will hear people say, yeah, I was really close with her. You know, I remember she taught me how to bake bread. And I'll never forget being in the kitchen with my grandma and talking with her and laughing with her as, as we made bread. And, and they can go then into stories about, about some of the things that happened. Or perhaps uh, he, he taught me how to fish. And I'll never forget sitting out in the boat with him in, uh, early in the morning when the sun was coming up and, uh, and, and the times that we spent together. And... Well, in fact, that's one of, one of Lori's great memories of her grandfather is being out on a boat on the lake 
when the sun's coming up and her grandfather is singing How Great Thou Art. And so she, she, she had those moments of closeness with her grandfather where she's hearing him express his love for God when it's just him and God and she's sitting in the boat with him. And so there's something about intimacy that, um, that, that is, is so important that it satisfies things in our hearts. But when a parent passes away, and, and I hear someone say that a mother or a father died, I, I'm much more reticent to ask that question, were you close to them? Because if you weren't close to your grandparent, probably some good reasons for that. If you weren't close to a parent, if you can't say, yeah, I knew them well, we were close, then the wounds are much deeper. And there's a lot more pain associated with that loss of relationship than there is even with as important as grandparents are uh, in, in a person's life. And so if, if a parent passes, uh, I might at some point ask that question, but it's going to be when there's, there's time to really listen and, and time to minister because of the, the, the impact that the relationship with the parent has in our lives and, and how important it is that, uh, you know, for us that, that we have some, some, in some way our parents' blessing in our lives. And now I want, I want to say that if you're here and you're, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I didn't have my parents' blessing, I didn't know my parents well, we were never close, God can make up for that, Okay. God can heal those wounds in your heart. He can heal the, the pain in, the, in your heart. And he can fill those spaces up in your life and, and make it just as if you were close to your parents. But if being close and intimate with my earthly parents is important, if knowing that my earthly father blessed my life, even though he knew me and we, uh, and we, we had relationship that, that we, we grew close together, if that's important, then how much more important is it that, that we have the blessing of our Heavenly Father and that we have some intimacy with Him where we understand why He does what He does, where we understand what His deep heart actually is. You know, in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, there's one place where it um, says that God revealed his power to his people, his power to Israel. He showed his strength, his works to Israel, but he taught Moses his ways. You see, it's, it's one thing to see the power. It's another thing to understand the ways of God, to understand the heart of God, and, and to have a, a growing sense of intimacy with God as, as we understand his heart. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 42, 2 said this. He said, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He says, my soul thirsts for God. It's not like it's, it's something he had to stir or create. It's just from the soul, from deep within me, I long for God. I want to know God. And, and later in that same chapter, he says, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. Now, that's, a, that's a, a, a poetic statement, a poetic way to uh, describe the, the heart of a person that longs to know God. But, um, you know, one of the things that happens with a waterfall is most, mostly there would be a, a deep pool of water at the base of a waterfall. 
Because when the water comes over the fall and it hits the ground, it carves out a deep pool there. And then the very water that carved that deep pool out fills it up. And, and he's saying there's this roar of your presence, but just like there's that, that depth, that deep pool of water there that only you can fill, so the deep place of my heart calls out to you. And so the deepness in my heart is calling out to be filled by the depths of your person and of your presence and, and intimacy with you. So there's this deep longing that we are intrinsically born with. Even, even before a person comes to Jesus, there's, there's a, a, an emptiness inside that we want to have filled, but the person oftentimes doesn't know that it's God, you know, through his son Jesus is the only one that can fill that. But once a person meets Jesus and our hearts are brought to life, spiritual life, then that desire to know God is stirred. And that desire to know God comes to life in a real, real way so that we recognize, I want God. I want more of God. And so we have that deep longing inside to know him. And, uh, you know, on his end, you know, what's going on? Well, it's important for us to know the intensity of his love for us. And I want to show you a verse that illustrates that. John 17, verse 23. He says this. Jesus is speaking. And Jesus is praying about uh, relationship with believers. And, and he says this. I am in them and you are in me. Okay, stop right there, would you? Just stop right there. Okay, get this. God's in Jesus and Jesus is in us. All right, say that with me. We're going to say God's in Jesus and Jesus is in me. Okay, let's say that together. God is in Jesus and Jesus is in me. So that means God is in me. And that means that the intimacy that Jesus and the Father have in in their relationship and the Spirit, the intimacy they have with one another exists and lives inside of me. And I am drawn into that intimacy. You see, the the theology of the Trinity is really the foundational uh, theological framework for relationship and and why we need relationship. Because God's always existed in relationship, in a triune being, in perfect union and relationship. And so he created us in his image, meaning we are created also for relationship. And so that primary relationship with God that we long for, that that our hearts long for. And and he describes here, I am in them and you are in me. And he says, and he's praying that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know. And two things that the world will know. He says, first of all, I pray that me being in them will draw them together into unity. Okay, Jesus in me and Jesus is in you. So how can you and I have any other type of a relationship other than one of unity. If the God of the universe is in both of us, then he's going to draw us together. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he's saying that when his people live in unity, then the world will know first that God sent Jesus because this doesn't happen any other way. Unity among people doesn't happen in the natural realm. It takes God's work for that to happen. And so But then also, and this is where I want to focus, this last phrase, that you loved them even as you loved me. God in Jesus, Jesus in me, 
God loving Jesus, Jesus in me, God loving me. He says here that it's not like God has this ultimate wonderful love for his son Jesus and then I fit down the list somewhere. You know, maybe he loves angels next. And then maybe he loves Moses and Abraham after that. And then maybe he loves uh, really, really, really good Christians after that. And I fit down here number 78 or so. It's not like that. It's not like there's a lesser love that he has for believers. In fact, it says here, what this is telling us is the same love God the Father has for his son Jesus, he has for you. If you're a follower of Christ, if you've accepted Jesus, then, and it's not just like he loves you because Jesus is in you. No, Jesus is in you because he loves you. You get that? Like, it would be easy to say, well, of course, Jesus is in me, so in Jesus, God loves me. It's kind of like people sometimes will say to each other, well, I love you in the Lord, which means I can't stand you, but I know I'm supposed to love you. (laughs) And so I love you. I'm going to say I love you. It's not like that. No, God loves me. He loves me. He loves me, the Bible says, even when I was a sinner, even when I was in rebellion against him, he loved me. He loved you, and he loves you now, personally and intimately and profoundly. He loves you just like he loves his son, Jesus. Now, that's an amazing thing to think of. It's an amazing thought. But when, when we couple that with our longing and our desire, so here I am, I have this intense longing and desire to know God, and here God is, he loves me just like he loves his son Jesus with whom he has perfect relationship, perfect and intimate fellowship, then why don't I experience that perfect relationship and that intimacy on an ongoing basis? What keeps me from experiencing it? And um, you could probably come up with a dozen things or maybe 50 different things that hinder intimacy with God. But I'm going I'm to talk about just a few, okay? Uh, just three things this morning we're going to talk about that can hinder intimacy. And you could flip this either way. I could be talking about things that promote intimacy and then bring the hindrances in. But when I was writing the notes up, I, I put them as hindrances. So we're going to look at the hindrances and then look at the solutions to the hindrances, okay? And so what hinders me from being intimate um, with God. Well, the first thing I'm going to say is this. It is cynicism. Okay, cynicism. You know what cynicism is? It, it, is, it is a propensity not to believe. It is, it is the attitude that looks at the negative rather than the positive. And it will, rather than looking at another human being expecting something good out of them, it will expect something bad out of them. That's a cynical view. So cynicism will uh, injure my relationship with God, my intimacy with God. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't move him away. I want to be clear on this. Years ago, I, I used to hear this saying, um, if you feel like God's distant, guess who moved? Okay, you hear that? If you feel like God's far away, or if you feel like God's distant from you, guess who moved? Okay, you get it? It wasn't God that moved. Who was it that moved? I moved, okay. I moved, or I turned, or for some, I don't even have to move. God could be right there. All I have to do is turn my shoulder, 
and, and suddenly I feel like he's distant when he really isn't. He's right there with open arms. But something in my heart is keeping me from experiencing the intimacy with him. And so cynicism is, the way that works is, a person sees something good, and instead of just saying, wow, God blessed me, they try to figure out some, some rationalistic explanation for it. And, and, and rather than just simply and with a childlike type of a heart, uh, just saying, thank you, Jesus, they have, they have a tendency to try to explain it away as just chance or some random thing that would have happened anyway. Uh, how many of you were here a few weeks ago when Jim Hunter spoke? Jim gave him, yeah, wasn't that a great message? Uh, man, if you didn't hear it, I encourage you to go on your, pod, your uh, app and go to the podcast to go back about four weeks, maybe five weeks, six weeks, and a message by Jim Hunter on childlike faith. Now, it wasn't childish faith, but childlike faith. And the antidote to cynicism is childlike faith. It is just an innocent approach to God and to what he's doing in our lives that just says, God, this is good. You do good things for your children. Thank you for doing this. I'm going to just look, it's good. Why do I need to try to explain it away? Um, One of the things that happens, like when Mark Marks and I uh, were out together, he prayed for a young man with a um, migraine headache. The guy had had a migraine for several days. And when Mark prayed for him, at that moment in time, the migraine left him, all right, gone. Now, a cynic would have to explore several things before they could say that was God. A cynic would want to know, well, did he take Advil or aspirin or Tylenol or something? You know, maybe finally the medication he's been taking has finally kicked in. And wow, isn't that amazing that it was coincidentally at the exact moment when you prayed for him? that the medication finally kicked in and his, and his migraine left. Or a, a cynic might say, well, maybe his headache was going to go away anyway. They have to end sometime. And again, what a coincidence, right when you prayed, it ended. That's what a cynic would have to at least explore that and have that in the back of their mind kind of uh, dampening their enthusiasm about something that God just did. Or a cynic might say, well, maybe you were so nice to him, and nobody had been nice to this guy for a long time, and you were so nice and loving to him that it made him feel so happy and relaxed that his body produced endomorphins, and that made him feel good, and the migraine headache went away. See, a cynic is going to look at it from all those different perspectives and never really quite, quite, quite break through to just simply, in a childlike way, saying, hey, wait a second, migraine headache for three days pray in Jesus' name, headache leaves, God did that. Rather than just that simplicity of that childlike faith, a cynic has to, at the very least, has to go through all these other things before they can get to that place. And and then all these other things then are always looming in the background anytime God does anything good, because there has to be some other explanation. We're looking for some rationalistic explanation. You you remember... um, uh, Mara Winters, who shared here about her leg growing, and that happened at a conference we went to in Champaign, where actually Mark Marks prayed for her. But Mara had had um, surgery on her one leg to, to stop its growth because the other leg wasn't growing. As a little, little girl, as a baby, she was born with one leg shorter than the other, and they did surgery on her three times to try to correct that and never corrected it. And then 
she goes on stage and they pray for her and her leg grew out at least a full inch, maybe an inch and a half, right, right in front of everyone's eyes. Right there it is. Now a cynic is going to look at that and say, well, I've seen that trick. I, saw, I saw, saw a show on the History Channel about magicians and how they can trick you and stuff like that. And, or, or a cynic is going to say, well, maybe she shifted her weight in the chair and, and that, that adjusted the length of, of the one leg and on and on. And, and, you know, had one, one person that's kind of a cynic <clears throat> said, well, the, it's the lower back that's out of alignment. And if the lower back just pops back into alignment, then the legs are going to be the same length. I said, well, okay, so praise God that we prayed for that person and the lower back went back into alignment. I said, if that's it, I'm fine with that. But it was God that did it. And, and beyond that, if you see this happen, when you see that leg growing, it's not like a shift of weight in a chair. It's not like, oh, my back popped and oh, there it is. You know, like, oh, oh, like there's some movement. There's no movement. It's just p- perfectly still, but this one just goes like that. And so I want to have childlike faith. I want to look at that and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank, thank you, Jesus, for that. And that childlike faith draws us more into the heart of God. It shows us more of the heart of God. You know, I'd never be upset with one of my grandchildren for attributing more to me than I'm capable of, or more than me than I've done. You know, if, if uh, one of my granddaughters or grandson, when he's old enough, if they say, oh, Grandpa Van, he can do anything. He could, oh, it stopped snowing. I'll, I'll bet Grandpa Van prayed, and that's why it stopped snowing. <laughs> you know, I, okay, praise Jesus. You know, I'm not going to take them aside and say, oh, look, I've got to correct your thinking. You're thinking wrong. Now, you don't want to be naive, son. And I know you're only three years old, but that's, you know, you'll, you'll learn as you grow older that you're looking at things all the wrong way. No, I think God wants us to stay in that frame of mind, that type of heart. That something good happens, I thank you, Jesus. Every manifestation of the goodness of God, be thankful for. And you will grow in intimacy with your Father because He's giving it to you. Now, I, I, I had to learn this when we first came into the gifts of the Spirit. Um, we were, I, I had spent like 18 years in a cynical, unbelieving realm of the church where we didn't believe God healed people or anything like that. And so now suddenly everything has flipped and within a very short period of time, I'm in the vineyard in a realm where uh, we do believe God heals people, but I'm still questioning everything and still struggling with different things that happen. And God spoke to me and reminded me of something. When, when I was um, probably 23 years old, it was 1974, I graduated from college, I was living at home for a few months. Um, between graduation and actually going and teaching. And um, I had saved like $80, I think it was, to buy a a bicycle, a, a, not a dirt bike, but a country bike, a bike you could ride, you know, on on off-road bike, bicycle. And I I could buy the low-end bike with that. That, Today, that would probably be $200. I'm not sure the exact equivalent. But there was one I wanted that was like $120, and I was short on cash for that. And uh, my friend and I were going to go buy our bikes on the same day, and my dad knew that. And I got up that morning and went downstairs, and there on the kitchen table 
were, were three $20 bills and a note from my dad. Well, at least it was in his handwriting. And, uh, you know, Van, buy the better bike. You know, here's some help for that. Something like that. He didn't sign his name, but it was his handwriting with the money right there on the table. And so the Lord brought that to my mind. And then he said, why would you ever doubt that it was your father that gave you that? Why would you doubt that it was actually your father who gave you that? I mean, why would I ever want to think, well, let's see. Someone could have broken into the house last night. <laughs> and they put 60, and they, hand, they mimicked my father's handwriting just to deceive me into thanking my father for something he didn't really do for me. I mean, why would I, why would I doubt that? And, and I, I just determined then in response to God's speaking to me, I want, I want that childlike heart. I, I would much rather thank God for something that he's going to say someday, well, boy, I'm glad you liked that, but you know, that wasn't me. I mean, I, I'd rather thank him for something he didn't do than miss thanking him for something he did do. And so when we are able to deal with this cynicism and just say, you know, I don't have, everything doesn't have to be explained rationally. I don't have to think that way. I don't have to live that way. There's something wonderful that happens in our hearts. And there's a closeness that, uh, that happens uh, with our, our father. Just the same closeness when my three-year-old grandchild looks at me and says, you made the rain stop, didn't you? And I just, man, that, that just warms your heart. And, 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 and God the Father just draws us closer into his heart when that happens. And so uh, let's just leave cynicism behind, okay? And the solution to that is childlike faith. Now, second thing, um, real briefly here, is fear. And fear that causes us to hold back. This is related to cynicism very closely, but I, I think there's a fear of being wrong, Especially in our uh, system of thinking in Western thought, our scientific mindset, we believe, and, and evangelical Christianity has developed this notion that being right about everything is the most important thing. And I need to, have, I need to be right about everything. And, and we have this sense of wanting, um, yeah, I think you're ahead of me here. That's not the right screen. So just ignore that. Okay, we'll come to that later. Um, There's a fear that is really of other people that we struggle with. And and I think it comes back to the cynical thing again. If I have a a significant person in my life, maybe a college professor, high school teacher, um, my favorite uncle that is an unbeliever and a cynic... And, and I want their respect. I really want them to respect me because they're, they are accomplished and they've done so many wonderful things. Then I have that person's face in my mind just about all the time. And so I see something and I, and I see the leg grow out and I'm thinking, well, that's pretty cool. Awesome. Wow. And then I think of my good friend or my professor or teacher or, or uncle or whomever, whomever it might be. And I see their face in my mind and I see them scowling. And I think of them scoffing. And I think of me trying to tell them what happened and how they would just laugh it off and just say, oh, you ignorant Christians, you think that stuff's real. And I have a desire to please them. 
And so I sort of adopt their cynicism out of fear. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yes. I hope it does. We need to reject that. Look, you are a carrier of God's presence. You don't need anyone else's approval. No matter, what, no matter how, how, how close you've been to the person or how much you love them or how much you respect them, you don't need them to approve your life because you're the one that's carrying God around with you. You're the one that's walking with Jesus. And so we need to give up this whole idea that uh, we have to hold back because uh, we're afraid of being wrong or afraid of, of appearing to be foolish or um, the fear of being out of control, uh, which th- this is the verse that was up there. So you were not ahead of me. You were right. I was wrong. <laughs> so the fear of being out of control. I want to look at a verse with you, Hebrews 1.9. Real quickly. It, it, this is speaking to the Messiah. And he says, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, Jesus, this this is speaking to Jesus, speaking to the Messiah, and he says, God has anointed you, Jesus, with a spirit of gladness or a spirit of joy or a spirit of rejoicing or a spirit of happiness more than all of your companions. So if you picture Jesus walking along with his 12 apostles and maybe a dozen or more other people tagging along, if you picture Jesus as the sour-faced one in the group because he's so serious about life, because he knows how awful sin really is, and, and, and he's here to do battle, if you picture him as the one with a serious look on his face, you're wrong. He was the happy one. He was the, he was the guy that was constantly, uh, constantly filled with happiness and joy. and la- He brought laughter to the group. Okay, now I, you know, my son tells me periodically um, that when my face is at rest, I look like I'm upset. You know, like your resting face. And he's even walked in and said, "Are you mad about something?" I said, "No. Why? Well, your face looks kind of like you're mad about something." And you know, I don't think Jesus ever had that problem. I was probably thinking about something serious at the moment. I'm not mad, but I'm feeling, you know, not very happy. And, um, you know, there's a term for that today they, they use about the resting face. <laughs> Ask a young person. <laughs> I don't want to have that. You know, I think we ought to get up and tell ourselves jokes every morning. We ought to smile and laugh and, and have a twinkle in our eyes because that's, that's how Jesus was. He, he was the happiest guy in the crowd. Now, he had his moments of grief and sorrow. We know that. But, but in, as he walked through life, he was happy. He was glad. And this word gladness, it means a full expression of joy. Tone of voice, look in the eye, the words you're using, body language, body expression, all of it, complete, total package was gladness and joy. And so this idea of fear of being wrong, fear of being foolish, holding back because of that. The, the antidote to that is to cut loose. The antidote to that is to be like Jesus, be the happiest person around. Be the person that isn't, isn't, isn't afraid to express yourself. And in worship, um, I think there's an application here of worship. Uh, you know, be, be, don't be afraid to express yourself. 
And when, when, when I mean that, everyone doesn't express themselves the same way. Some people like to jump up and down during worship. Uh, you know, I like Dave King. If you know Dave, our executive pastor, when I look at Dave, I can tell if he's worshiping or not. He's not jumping up and down. Uh, he's not cheering very often, once in a while. But I can see, I can just, I look at him and I can see in the whole deal that he's, he's expressing himself to God, body, mind, soul, spirit, everything, all at once. And so worship needs to be a full body expression, whatever that means to you at this point in your life and in your growth. And that, that is how we cut loose and break bonds of fear of being foolish. And when we do that for God, he loves it. And we, we grow more intimate with him. And then finally, I'm going to end with this, but uh, independence, living my way, living on my wisdom. You know, oh, one more step. Um, Baptism is a full body expression, okay? That's why we're doing baptism here in a few weeks. We have a class this Wednesday night. We immerse people. Because that's, it's a full body expression, just like this gladness. The word gladness means a full expression of joy. And so if you haven't been baptized, I strongly encourage you to come this Wednesday night to the church here at 630 and learn more about what baptism means and, and what a beautiful, powerful uh, moment of worship it can be in your life. But uh, independence, I'm going to live my way by my wisdom, uh, is a, another thing that hinders intimacy And let me tell you how that happens. Um, Well, first of all, Jesus is the only person who ever lived well. Okay, think about that. Jesus is the only person who ever lived well. From beginning to end, no lapses. He lived well the whole way through. And so why wouldn't I want to follow his teaching on life? Why wouldn't I want to say, well, all right, Jesus, then tell me how to be like that. And when Jesus, in this verse, um, James, or John 14, 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him, and make our home with him. So he says, if you love me, you're going to follow my teachings. Now, that sounds almost like a controlling type of a thing. Maybe be easy for us to think, well, then you're asking me just to be a slave or to be a non-thinking person and not to use the wisdom God gave me. Just I'm just going to, in a rote way, obey all these commands. Uh, well, no, no. I'm going to say Jesus is the only person who ever did this successfully, so of course I'm going to follow you. Of course I'm going to listen to your teachings. Of course I'm going to want to do it the way you did it. Now, think of this as an illustration. Michael Jordan, one of the greatest uh, basketball players of all time, I I don't know a lot about basketball, but a lot of people would say the greatest, he was great at making the three-point shot at the end of the game. I've heard it said that if if, if at the end of the game you need three points to win and and you're going to take a shot at the buzzer, you want the ball in Michael Jordan's hands. Now let's say he starts a basketball camp and all he's teaching you is how to make that three-point shot right at the end of the game. And so he gathers the camp, and you're, you're one of the campers, and he's teaching you mentally how to do it, how to prepare for it, physically how to prepare for it, exactly what to do, where to go on the court, how to evaluate, on and on. And he notices that a lot of the players there aren't really listening because they think they know. You know, we have experience. We know how to do this. You know, you're an old guy. 
Maybe you did it back in your day, but we know how to do this now. But he looks at you and he sees that you're really paying attention. And he sees that you're really taking what he's saying. And you're, 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 really, you're, really, you're really applying it. There's going to be automatically a connection there. Because you're following his teaching. Not in a rote way, just you're smart enough to know this is the man. I want to learn to do it the way he did it. And then let's say eventually you end up in a game and Michael Jordan's there in the stands and it comes down to the buzzer and you have the ball in your hands and you remember everything he taught you and everything you've practiced that he taught you and it all comes together and at that second you make the shot and it swishes through the hoop and your team wins and you look over and there's Michael Jordan cheering for you and saying you're the man and you're going to turn to him and you're going to say, no, you are. You gave, you taught me this. I learned this all from you. And high-fiving, hugging, whatever happens next, there's an automatic intimacy that happens. It's a relational thing that happens. It's not like a, well, okay, God, I obeyed five of your commands, and therefore I get what? How much intimacy do I get with you? How much more time am I going to get with you? It's not like that. It is, uh, you know, (laughs) I trust him. I love him. I want to be like him. And so I'm following his ways, and that automatically results in a connecting of hearts. So, um, yeah, I'm going to ask Sarah to come on back up, and she's going to lead us into the next.